This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Hello, hello. It is 5 o'clock. It is Saturday. And my Maroki, you're looking quite tanned. <laughs> and I am freezing to death in Toronto, Andre. It is 30 <laughs> degrees outside and it's not hot enough and it's not sunny enough. Oh, why Why do you say that, Maroki? <laughs> well, um, I've been really fortunate to have spent uh, about last week in Greece and under the blazing Mediterranean sun. And over there, um, I was there during the super, I guess, like infamous heat wave that blasted across Europe. And it was 40 degrees, 30 plus degrees plus humidity during the time I was there. So I will say that stepping off the plane in Toronto when I got back, I was really cold. I was genuinely cold, like goosebumpy cold in 26 degrees. Oh, that is insane. Uh, I, I guess before we get to like the whole food and drink thing, I've got to ask, are you someone who thrives in the heat or uh, was it too much for you? Um, I would say that as I've gotten older, I've actually become more tolerant in the heat. When you asked me in my 20s, I was definitely like hot blooded, thrived in the winter, always said you can always put on more layers, but you can't peel off your skin <laughs> in the heat. But as I've gotten older, I find that my heat tolerance has actually gone up and my cold tolerance has gone down. So it didn't bother me too much. And I think it's because we are we were on the coast, like on the Mediterranean coast, there were some breezes here and there. So unless you were not like as, lo- as long as you were not out, like literally laying out under the sun, it wasn't too bad. Well, that's good to hear. I guess the most important question we've got to say, what did you eat while you were there? You were there? I think, Andre, if I stopped eating for the next six weeks, it'll only be too soon. That is how much reserve calories I have have in my body. I, um, to kind of uh, give people the reason why I was in Greece, I was there for sort of it was for work. Um, but you know, honestly, when you're in Greece, how can you possibly be 100% working? I will say I have that absolute privilege. I was brought over there by a winery called Domain Porto Caras, which was which is a winery in Thessaloniki in Greece, which is sort of two hours north of Athens um, to sort of explore the Meloton uh, region, the wine growing region out there and, and Chateau Porto, and uh, Domaine Portocaras and explore the winery, the region, the agriculture and sort of dig into what that PDO is all about. So I've stuffed my face with probably everything you can imagine people expect from uh, Greek cuisine, olives, olive oil, cheese, but so many other things as well. Like rice, I learned that rice is actually um, the fourth largest production. Like Greece is the fourth largest producer of rice in Europe. And we got to ex- uh, eat fresh mussels. So, so much food, Andre. Where do you want me to begin? Well, I guess the thing I was... Uh... I would like to dive into what the seafood was. And, you know, if you're familiar with, I guess, the hundreds and hundreds of souvlaki restaurants that exist in Canada, just was the food what you were expecting? Or was there something different that you were just like, oh, I'm surprised that this is how the Greeks eat? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a mix. Um, I personally actually had very little souvlaki on the trip, but that doesn't necessarily mean it isn't something that they eat regularly. Um, for us, there was a lot of focus on the seafood. I think the Sonaliki sort of being by the water uh, has quite a focus on a lot more seafood. We ate a lot of fish when we were there um, from 
cod and shrimp, which they actually said is a little bit more fresh water than it is salt water. So it's a bit sweeter to the mussels. They have a large mussel farming production out there. So I, I, they actually told me one of the fellows on the trip, he was he was Greek American, so he was American on the trip, but half Greek, and told me that beef is actually not something they do. That's actually not their kind of pride and joy out there, mm. that the focus is more on seafood. So that was actually fascinating to me. What I actually found most fascinating is, of course, we had moussaka and um some of those, I guess, homier dishes, moussaka kind of being a layering of eggplant and cheese and uh, and and tomatoes. They were telling me how in Greece, they actually for years were trying to make food, uh, make foreign food, like food that was Italian or French. And because uh, traditional dishes like their their moussakas or their their pies and um, the the Greek name's gonna escape me, but it sort of reminds me of like the like a spit like the spinach feta wraps, but spinach feta like kind of pressed in the pancake style and a savory pancake. Mm. They were telling us that those foods were considered, um, I guess, like low class food, and so for you know to try and raise their status they were making foreign food because everyone's like oh you know if you make food that's french or italian it's considered more prestigious and now they are actually trying to return focus back to their home roots and showcase greek food for what it is humble roots can be but can be made incredibly delicious and representative of their culture and who they are as a people Oh, that's fascinating. And yeah, I, I think I think it's something that we're sort of seeing the whole it, it's almost a continuation of farm to table where like that whole impact of globalization in the late 80s and early 90s is finally snapping back where it's just people are like, OK, you know, it's cool that we've had this really long period of being able to look outward, but let's take a look inward and see what we can and see what we can do and just re restore some pride and prestige to our, our local foods. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like a mixture of that and still knowing that they are going to integrate other elements of the culture, right? One of the things I they showed us was just like, if you look at the Macedonian Empire historically and the cross sections with the Roman Empire, uh, there's going to be always a bit of cross culture, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you can kind of showcase other cultures without shutting, like shutting away your own culture, or hiding away your own culture. And I think that's what they're trying to bring back to shine, right? And uh, there was actually another thing I learned. So, you know, how everyone talks about like Greek and then you think about feta cheese. Yeah. When we did it, when we did, so we actually did some cult, um, some food tours in the city. We visited some farmers markets, which I think I know is something that you love oh, doing, Andre. So, so yes, we got to visit the farmers market, and they were saying like they were like everyone's like feta cheese, and the the guide was saying, well, feta in Greek just means slice of. So <laughs> 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 what we know about feta cheese, or like you know that version that's like soft and. Um, a little bit like squeaky. They said, "Well, that's just that's just their young cheese. It just spends like two months um, aging. It's it's just young cheese. But like all cheese, I guess, could be feta cheese because all cheese is a slice of cheese." And so I got to kind of got educated there, right? Showing our particular ignorance about so wait, languages. So, so what does older feta taste like compared to like the stuff that I love to put in my salads? Tastes like delicious. Well, there's different types, right? So they had one, they have ones that like some of them are barrel aged feta cheese. It will impart, you know, obviously a little bit of like oak and, and 
and kind of more woodsy flavor. I have one. I actually bought some home. And maybe if you're very nice to me, I'll share a little bit with you, Andre. They had ones that were aged in olive oil, which imparted this delicate, beautiful floral sweetness to it. So there's lots of different ways and it transforms. It's the, it's like olive oil, right? So I think, you know, with a couple of minutes left, I think it would be foolish of me to not obviously mention that olives is a massive production in Greece. I think there was just one, this is just one region, just wasn't just, wasn't all of Greece. There's this region called Hakitiki, um, which was where uh, the, uh, domain Porto Kadash winery was that region of Lone, which was just these kind of three fingered peninsula um, off of Greece, grows six million olive trees. Six million. That's a lot of freaking olives. And so their olive and olive oil production is quite intense. Uh, you know, when you talk about what does something taste like, well, I guess the answer is always it depends. It, it, you know, given that we're wine kids, terroir, terroir matters, Andre, across all foods and all parts of agriculture. I love that. It's so important to, I think, be able to reflect on great food tastes where it comes from and i also love the fact that like, i like to bring food back with me when i travel as well just to help extend that holiday a little bit i'm looking forward to just unpacking a little bit more because we obviously did that was a whirlwind tour of what yes. you ate on the trip but we are going to be unpacking it a little bit more in detail not this week but on an upcoming show about the wines that you tasted there which is what you were there to learn about but uh yes coming up after the break we are coming hyper local where we are going to talk to uh, a metis business owner that has recently opened up a cafe in toronto and you may have heard of her if you're of the same vintage as me <laughs> so stick around you can find out who she is after the break on 640 toronto this is tasting together welcome back to tasting together toronto's news today's talk 640 toronto you know, this isn't a music show, but I have to point attention to Maroki. I think you've, hopefully you've listened to the whole record when we were getting ready for the next interview coming up. This is Trash 8, Numb by Holly McNarland. You know, give me a second just to bring the music up a little bit. And, um, yeah, um, I love this record a lot. Oh, that's nice. Have you listened to the, my last one? Uh, I did listen to your last one. Okay, we've just okay. buried the lead here. Maroki, you've been you've been stepped on by the great Holly McNarland. I think that's okay. I think um, there's nothing more rock and roll than the rock star coming on stage and just being like, this is my show now, and I'm going to share <laughs> my vibe and my energy with everyone and make way. I am here for it. Thanks for joining us, Holly McNarland, yeah. to the show, talking about mute. Well, we, I know we we're talking about music because Andre's clearly a huge fan of yours or else uh why would we lead right into the show with your music and your incredible career i love it well i mean there's one thing making making a living as an artist is already a challenge but holly if you don't mind me asking like you've gone completely crazy and decided to open up a restaurant and you opened up a cafe house coat cafe uh what, like what? What are you thinking? What's switching from music to uh, definitely to not a restaurant? A restaurant. I think okay. I would have a nervous breakdown if I okay. had to open a restaurant. I don't know how people do it. It's so much work, but uh, it's a takeout espresso bar. So, you know, I haven't. I think my last show was in Atland, BC, probably pre-pandemic, like Atlin probably music festival, Atlin yeah. Music Festival. Uh, it was fun. It was awesome. We did a glacier tour. Dan Mangan was there. It was, a, it was a blast, but that was my last show. Then the pandemic hit. And we've just always loved coffee. And it's like, you know what? I don't want to tour. Um, it's really hard to make money in music. 
Uh, and at this point, I actually could because my kids are basically grown up. I'm a 24-year-old and a 16-year-old. So as a mom, I could tour, but I just I don't want to tour now. So I, I'm not closing the door on music, but I'm opening the door on coffee. We'll just see what happens. I love that. And Me actually, too. this is a moment to shout out Chad Hunt, who uh, I heard chime in in the background there, because both of you are, um, I believe, life partners and business partners in yeah, making... Yeah, he plays in yeah. my band as well when we play. Oh, wow. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, yes. And partners in all the ways, and both of you are veterans in the music, TV, and film industry. So that's great. And coming in together to make House Coat. So I know you spoke a little bit about how it's not a restaurant that's that's takeout. I know there's, I think there's like a deli side to it as well. So, yeah. so what can people expect when they're coming into the space? Because it seems that it's a little bit different and there was like some focuses that you have that you want to adhere to kind of focusing on that small scale the community feel the family-owned feel yeah so essentially we've lived in our house for 12 years we've noticed there's a gap in this type of espresso bar directly in this neighborhood there's tons around us but nothing in our little pocket i mean as far as coffee goes we like we bought a hand-built roaster from this guy in taiwan you know, and, and did roasting for a while. We considered commercially roasting coffee. Um, it ended up being something that we didn't want to pursue on that level, but we've always been super into coffee, you know, and passionate about it. And uh, as Holly said, within our little pocket, like the Hallam and Dovercourt sort of, you know, intersection, there's a small amount of commercial space there. There's a new Italian restaurant there. There's Frank the Taylor who's been there. He's 89 there's years old. He's been there bakeries. forever. There's yeah, there's a couple of bakeries there. And we living around the corner, we're literally a two-minute walk from it. You know, we we've always been like, it would be great if there was a sort of awesome, you know, third wave espresso bar in the neighborhood. Because there there seemed to be a, this one little hole, you know, surrounded by cafes. And so um you know, nobody did it. And so eventually we we thought we'd do it. So here we are. And the, and as far as the deli part, so we we tell people we're roommates. So uh, we took over the front 300 square feet, renovated it. I designed it. I loved it. That was my favorite part so far. Uh, and so you come in, you come to us, and then you can go to this back window, and you can order masa deli, which is delicious. And so the neighbors are loving it. The community loves it because they don't have to walk to Bloor or to Geary. I think it's so reflective of the, the times, too, when you have multiple businesses sharing space and just... It makes so much sense. It really does. It has that kind of very cooperative feel or even reminds me of, you know, when I'm in New York and you go to a bodega and you you kind of tick all the boxes of what you're looking for right away. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. And actually, we just started this thing. I don't know if you guys are following... Our Instagram, but a lot of people were coming in asking Masa Deli for a horchata because that's he's making them uh, if, for an espresso in it. So we're now doing that, and we're calling it a dirty horchata. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, and it's delicious from a from a food perspective. You know, you guys are a food show. Like, we're not people who want to make hot food. You know what I mean? We don't want to do a kitchen. That's not our thing. Our passion is coffee, and we have really delicious French pastries. You know, and and that kind of thing. And then Holly put together a really beautiful retail wall with some grocery items and stuff, which is really cool. We just wanted to focus on what we know we can do really well. Exactly. Yeah. And and food and like prepared food kitchen is not our, nope. you know, it's not our area at all. So 
uh, it's nice having Masa in the back, you know, it, it, because you can get a lot of people from the neighborhood are, are stoked because they can come in, they can get hot food if they want their breakfast sandwich or salad bowl or whatever. And then they can come to us and get, you know, espresso based and drinks. It really and stuff. works well together. People, it's, it's very few people come in and just go one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know? I feel yeah. like uh, Andre's been stunned into silence with his starstruckness. It's, of it's, not, being the star, in it's not the <laughs> It's not the starstruckness. It's just you guys are doing such a good job, like really painting the picture of what people can expect <laughs> when they go to house coat. And I think that's something that's uh, that's really really important here. But one thing I did want to ask you about is uh, on your on your Instagram ID, uh, your Instagram bio. You talk about how it's Métis owned and operated. Holly, you're Métis. Can we talk a bit about why it's important to make that distinction? And let's talk a little bit about uh, the culture that you're hoping to bring to Housecoat. So essentially, as a Métis woman, I'm Red River Métis, so I'm an MMF member. Um, and I just think it's for me, it's important for people, especially other young Métis people or older Métis people, just to, to know that we're here. And we're making a mark in different industries. You know, I went from music as a Métis artist, and now I'm in the coffee world, I guess, kind of restaurant business as a Métis woman. And I just think it speaks volumes. And I think uh, it's an important thing to let people know about. And uh, actually, once you guys come in, I hope you visit. I commissioned this young Métis artist out of BC. He's living in BC. I think he's from here. He did these for beautiful paintings for our wall that you'll see when you come in. So, you know, just just adding those little elements, like the prairie fog eventually, if I can get that together. And <laughs> have the yeah, confidence enough to like... Yeah, yeah what's that all about? Well, it's, there's a... I think if you... Have you have you been to the prairies? Uh, I, I grew up in Regina, actually. Okay. So you know what sweet grass smells like? A little bit. A little bit? cedar white pine it's just sort of like the simple syrup that i'm adding to um it's like a london fog but we're calling it a prairie fog i am it's not on the menu yet because i'm still perfecting it (laughs) but that's the plan just little tiny things you know just little elements of my heritage are important well, I guess mm-hmm. maybe, maybe absolutely. Well, and you know what? If you ever need beta testers, I'm sure Andre and I <laughs> can come swinging in and happy to sit there and uh, workshop. Well, yeah. Well, you guys give me a heads up, and I'll make some and make sure that you and you'll give me your honest opinion. Okay. So, where can people find you, and and uh, when are you open? Nine eight five Dovercourt Road, Hallam and Dovercourt. What our hours are? <laughs> Then seven thirty to three Monday to Friday and eight to three thirty Saturday Sunday. So we're open seven days a week. So you know standard coffee shop hours. Right on. Well, thank you so much for giving us the time. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Coming up, we are going to take a look at Pride Month. Don't look at your calendar. It's not a rerun. Uh, we are going to be sitting down with the people from Barefoot to talk a little bit about their LGBTQ plus initiatives. I'm super excited to dig into this, Andre. So stick around. We'll be back very shortly on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It may be July, but you know me, Andre. Uh, This is something that I care a lot about when talking about things that mean a lot to me. But we had Pride last month in June, but... I'm a firm believer that pride should happen all year round. Don't you agree? 
You know, it's just we we talk a lot about ethics and and corporate ethics on this so, show, even though it's a food show. Um, and you know, I, even off the air, like it always frustrates me when you see some sort of cause the slacktivism that takes place, even with uh, corporations. Now, although thankfully, I think the voice is getting louder that will change their company corporate logo to have a rainbow background for the month of June, and then July first, immediately things change back to normal without having to acknowledge, um, you know, a commitment to the LGBT. TQ plus community year round. So uh, we thought we would take a look at a little bit of year round pride on uh, tasting together this week. I'm super excited. Like I actually didn't know this, but I learned it a couple of years ago, but the brand barefoot, and I'm sure many of us have seen that barefoot on wine labels in the LCBO or wi- other wine shops beyond barefoot has actually been an ally to the LGBTQ plus community since 1988. So over 30 years at this point, they're, you know, here to make wine, except for everyone and ex- extending their values of inclusivity and positivity to wine lovers. And that's great. So we're super excited to, to be partnering with them on the segment. And we have joining us Rebecca Yates Campbell, who is an enthusiastic spokesperson for the uh, EJ and Gallo brands uh, for, I think uh, she's having her in- anniversary for speaking with the company today of 23 years. So welcome to the show, Rebecca. Gosh, well, thank you. I, I didn't bring that up, but um, <laughs> yes, 23 years. And actually, you know, I've had the pleasure of working with Barefoot for my career with um, the Gallo Winery and working with Barefoot um, for a long time. And I I really love Andre, as we were talking, as you were talking about in the opening, you know, uh, we at Barefoot are supporters of the LGBTQ community and have been um, our entire sort of brand life. And um, what's kind of interesting is it started with our very first salesperson. Um, His name was Randy Arnold. And uh, he was a member of of the LGBTQ plus community. And so, you know, just naturally when he was talking about supporting the community and promoting Barefoot, he would go to, um, you know, LGBTQ events and support different organizations um, with Barefoot Wine. And so it just became a natural that um, Barefoot's mission became to create, you know, a place where everybody belongs and a world truly made better through wine. And really that um, his stewardship, his leadership um, really made us champions for the LGBTQ community. So I'm just thrilled that I'm able to work with this community and work with this brand that really is genuine. Um, you know, 365, it's not just uh, the month of June. Mm-hmm. And I think the LGBT plus community, uh, LGBTQ plus community loves you back because I was yeah. just in Provincetown <laughs> uh, a few a few weeks ago and Provincetown is very well known to be sort of like a queer beachfront haven. Mm-hmm. And it was during Pride Month. I was there during June. And when I went to those liquor stores, there was a Kava brand and there was Barefoot. That Barefoot yeah. Rainbow, um, that very exclusive kind of um, Barefoot Rainbow label was everywhere. And I think this, I remember the sparkling wine one, but this year there's also that Moscato that yeah. you have as well, which um, I had a taste of it. And I, I used to not, I, I still am. I would say like Andre sometimes likes his, uh, when he enjoys his sweet wines a little more than myself, I tend to not <laughs> drink that much sweet wines, but I've kind of gotten into more Moscatos and Muscat Altenels mm-hmm. over the years. And for me, when I drank it, it had very much that like dead ringing floral yep. flavor of Moscato. So I was like, okay, yeah, if you are a lover of Moscato, this truly is representative of 
of that kind of wine. So if you yeah, love that delicious sure. sweeter wine, here it is for you, right? No, absolutely. And and what I love about Moscato is like, it, you know, no matter who you are, when you raise a glass of Moscato to your nose, it smells great. It smells pretty. It's enticing. You want to almost dive into the glass because it smells so lovely. Um, and so, you know, it made a lot of sense to us to celebrate Pride this year with that limited edition um, Pride Moscato bottle um, with the Pride flag on top of it and and donating a dollar from actually from every bottle sold to PFLAG Canada, um, which is fantastic. And it's an organization that provides peer-to-peer support, education and resources for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and we've supported PFLAG in the past, um, PFLAG Canada specifically, as well as PFLAG in the US. Um, we really love their mission and we feel they're a great one to support. So um, I love having that Pride bottle. It is a limited edition for Pride. Um, you know, we have it through June. There's still a little bit left out there. So it looks amazing. You know, Moscato, it is a little sweeter, but if you throw a little soda water in there and a little ice, you know, you still got those lovely aromatics and a delicious wine that maybe isn't as sweet. Yep. That's always a, a good strategy. I, <laughs> I think I think I've sort of gone back and forth from being, you know, a hardcore snob that would uh, be very disappointed to hear about the thought of putting ice in any <laughs> wine. And now I think we're at the point where, you know, we need to stop taking wine so seriously. Uh, mm-hmm. Stop taking the packaging so seriously, uh, using wine as an ingredient for cocktails. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the, the great things about what Barefoot is doing here, maintaining quality of product while uh, still having some fun with the packaging here. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess, like, is is there an internal philosophy in the company that exists just to make sure that wine is um, as accessible as possible? Or, like, uh, you know, wine consumers can be quite um, traditional and and mm-hmm. resistant to change. I think there's still some people who are afraid of screw caps, even though they're wrong. Um, <laughs> I know there's a question somewhere in there just about, I guess, uh, how Barefoot pulls everything together to make a good product and stand out on the shelf. Yeah, well, you know, our philosophy really has been um, never to take wine too serious. And that's why you see that footprint on the label, right? That's kind of silly, right? It's like the stomping of the grapes and the putting your foot on the label. And that was the whole idea is, you know, not to take wine too seriously and have a lot of fun. So it's why when you see us, you'll often see like on our website, we have cocktail recipes that include wine and we try to have alternative packaging and uh, we just want to make wine accessible to everybody and fun. And that's really, you know, the way we've been from the very beginning. So our kind of quirky personality and ability to bring together with wines that are fun, flavorful, approachable, but also varietally correct. And that's really important to our winemaker, Jen Wall, um, to have varietally correct, accessible wines that are delicious and um, you know so Moscato is definitely you know sweeter style and refreshing and bright Um, but you know our Pinot Grigio is a little bit lower in um, sugar and uh, tends to be for people who maybe don't want the sweetness in their wine. Actually I really do appreciate that because I think uh, Andre you know alluded to it a little bit sort of the snobbishness that can exist in the world of wine and that's Mm -hmm. either affiliated to the the cost of the wine how it's packaged or perceptions of it however what we seem to always forget is that the moment we do that we start excluding really huge parts of wine drinkers and I think Mm -hmm. that we forget that as we lock ourselves into certain categories of wine enthusiasts I just did a trip recently with several other bloggers and writers and a lot of them were in the travel or lifestyle field as opposed Mm -hmm. to just um, hardcore sort of wine nerds and it actually was really hard for some of them on the trip because they let's say you know 
were lovers of sweet wines and everyone was serving only quite dry wines in tri-trip and it actually made it really hard for them to sort of have a good experience and they were afraid of sort of asking for what they want so i think you know what when we have wines that are you know sweet per se like the moscato um I think that uh, kind of makes things more accessible. And when you have wines in alternative packaging, like cans and and in, and in pouches, you know, it shows that. And frankly, there's a sustainability element to it, but it shows that wine can sort of be unpretentious and fun. And then, of course, we have the more lower alcohol and low sugar movements that are coming through, which I think actually personally is incredibly important uh, for uh, for kind of drinkers or people who want to socialize at large to have those options out there. Like, I agree. <laughs> Amen. I mean, you you just said what we say, right? There we. Just- just believe in, you know, you sh- if you uh, want a great beverage, we believe Barefoot's got a wine for everybody. And you're right. If you want something sweet, have at it. Have something sweet. If you want something a little drier, you know, try a little drier. But really, we believe wine should be for everybody. And um, I agree with you. And Barefoot has never been snobby about wine. We never will be. That's why we have, you know, both our uh, sparkling wine. We have our sweeter style wines. We actually have a new product called Fruit Scotto, which is Moscato with fruit flavors in it, which is super fun for the summer or actually for any time. You serve it a little bit chilled, but again, it brings wine to people who maybe didn't like wine before, maybe didn't want a dry wine, but you know, they know they love pineapple and they want to have something in a wine glass and enjoy it. And that's what uh, we brought with Fruit Scotto. Interesting. Yeah, I just took a quick look at the uh, the Fruit Scotto listing on the LCBO website, $9.95 a bottle, 7.5% yep. alcohol, um, a little bit sweet for mm-hmm. as a heads up. This is Likely not a wine made for your serious wine drinkers, but I think it's exactly like you said. It can serve as a as a conduit or at the very least have people feel like they um, can just have something they enjoy in a glass. Yeah, for sure. Rebecca, well, well thank you amazing. so much for taking the time to speak with us and also uh, just to go over the history of, um, you know, Barefoot's connection to the LGBTQ plus community. Um, really interesting story to uh, to lead into this conversation here. Gosh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for your intelligent questions and for talking barefoot wine with me and get barefoot and have a great time is what we say. So there you go. Well, it seems serendipitous that we're talking about barefoot and sweet wines because coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about more of the sweet stuff and sugar in wines and why people actually like it more than you think. Coming up after the break on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It is that time on Saturday when we are joined by Danny Longo of the Global Newsroom to talk about the world of beverage. Maroki Tong is here as always. And Danny, I'm not sure if you saw this story in the newsroom or this was a little bit too uh, nerdy or snobby. I got to put my snob hat on just a little bit. But there was a press release I got earlier this week talking about how Ontario VQA Riesling was selected by a prestigious wine exam as a benchmark Riesling for Canada. If you are in the know for Ontario, Charles Baker, the Charles Baker Riesling is one of the sort of OG uh, cult wines. And um, it was recently selected as part of the MW, the Master of Wine exam. This is one of the hardest wine tests in the world. And I think it's just worth mentioning because it's kind of like, you know, people who are very serious and into wine have now included... Ontario in their club to test people on it. I did not see that. I usually uh, perk up whenever I see any story about wine, especially Ontario wine. And no, I haven't seen that. But I I mean, I've been saying for years that especially Riesling, Ontario Riesling is one of my favorite Ontario wines. Uh, I have a few favorites. Fielding is one of my go-tos. I also like Flat Rock. Yeah, there's some really, really great Ontario Rieslings. 
Yeah, well, we make uh, you know Riesling very, very similarly to the way we do it. I guess they, the folks do it in in Germany or even Alsace, right? Cool climate, higher acid, and um, if we were kind of, if I want to say like we're doing Eau de German Rieslings, they kind of lean from the spectrum of dry, which a lot of people don't realize there is dry Riesling out there, folks. If you are a dry wine drinker, not everything is super sweet, but they. You know, in, in, in Mosul, they do do sweet Riesling. So you can kind of make the spectrum from dry Riesling all the way to sweet Riesling. It's incredibly versatile that way. You know, it's one of my favorite things, though, is um, when people... There's just this hesitancy about enjoying a Riesling or actually wines in general with a little bit of residual sugar. And it's been fantastic, you know, to get deeper down the rabbit hole of my wine career. You know, I still remember the first time I tasted an, an off dry Riesling. Um, it was the Vineline Elevation, which is one of my favorite. It has about mm. anywhere between 20 and 40 grams per liter residual sugar if uh, you're keeping track at home. But, you know, my parents had drilled into my head that dry is good and sweet is bad and sweet wines are bad. Mm. And I remember tasting this wine and just being like, well, I guess I like bad wine because I really like like this wine here. But yeah. like, Maroki, you were, you were telling me a bit of a, a story Um and I think this is a good way to sort of segue into this about an experience you had. Yeah, and and it was it's actually really interesting that we're talking about sweeter wines. Obviously, we are coming off the segment with Barefoot as well, where we were talking about their pride, uh, their custom, like their exclusive pride uh, labeled Moscato, which is obvious, which is obviously also quite sweet. And the land of Moscato as a wine, I know sometimes people like similarly to I guess Riesling they sneer down on it thinking that it isn't good but Moscato as a wine and Moscato d'Asti which is Italian is inherently sweet and that's the style they generally like to make it for for audiences and so it kind of begs the question then clearly and ice wine is considered a prestigious premium product and it is sweet so clearly sugar is not the issue when it comes to determining prestige but the story that I have is that Recently, as you know, as the weather's getting warmer and I'm getting the opportunity to, especially in the post-COVID world, to start socializing with a lot of my friends again, um, a lot of them not in wine, is whenever I visit them, most of the time I, the wines I bring are not to their palate. Actually, like I went to a barbecue last weekend, my friend really wanted sweet wine, and when I was traveling in Greece, um, we had a couple who was on the trip and the the wife she did not like dry wines like she likes wine with sugar and it was actually a huge struggle for her to be participating on this trip with us uh because she just a lot of the wines just were not to her palate whatsoever and so it it it, it kind of shows like there's a lot of people out there who love sweet wines and actually are finding it hard to access it or either like feel i guess like shamed that they mm -hmm. don't because they like sweet wine and they don't like quote unquote dry wine and i think that kind of sucks yeah, you know, I find it's a lot of trial and error, really finding what you like, what you don't like. And that's why I think tastings are so popular. You get to try three, four, five wines, whatever it is. And, you know, you say this one isn't for me, but I really like this one right here. Yeah, and I, th I think, Maroki, you kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit, too, with just one of the problems with the culture surrounding wine in, in general. That it's just like, you know, I, I think when you go from just being a casual drinker like i like a glass of wine with um you know with my meal to just being like you know i i think between the three of us here we're all 
insanely curious and want to unravel the minutiae, the details, the barrels, the yeast strains, the the grape clones, all these things that most people will never, ever care about that, you know, there's just this whole exclusionary culture surrounding wine in general, right? And I, I do think it is a bit of a, a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's not to say that I love changing people's mindsets around wine. So if someone says, I only like dry wine, I let, you know, like had that conversation of perceived sweetness and I go, yeah. Oh, do you now? And then they find out that mm-hmm. they, their version of a dry wine is apothic red, which is 20 grams of residual sugar. I feel like we've been shouting out <laughs> apothic should be sponsoring us at this point. The amount of times I've meant used it as an example on the show, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, and, and like people who say, Oh, I don't like dry wines. I love saying like, well, let me show you this wine that is really ripe, has beautiful fruit characteristics. And they go, oh, I actually like this wine. And I'd be like, did you know it has less than five grams of residual sugar in it? Right. I love changing people's perspectives and broadening their perspectives in wine. But that's not the same as saying if someone really knows what they're looking for, then why not give it to them? And maybe we should stop constantly poo-pooing on the notion that only great wine is dry wine because a lot of people like love sweet wine and we need to remember not everyone is like a quote-unquote like wine enthusiast or you know fine wine drinker wine can be a lot of things and it could also just be unpretentious fun be able to mix be mixed into like sangrias or cocktails without you thinking it like you're about to destroy your 50 dollar bottle of so-and-so right Edgar McSnob is giving you permission to mix your red wine with Coca-Cola in the car if you want. But if it's something <laughs> that's very fine and prestigious, I'm, I might shed a tear for it if you're mixing like Bordeaux, Grand Cru Bordeaux with uh, with your Coca-Cola. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of sucks that you, you, it feels like we need to give permission to people to drink something the way they the way they want to. But I love using the the sports analogy. Um, you know, you can really love the Toronto Maple Leafs and that doesn't mean that you need to strap on a pair of skates and dedicate your life to trying to make the team and still just really enjoy hockey and have a really casual interest in it. I think wine is the same way. Yeah. And like I said, there's clearly wines of prestige that are designed to be sweet. Ice wine is globally considered a prestigious product. It is sweet. We all know it is sweet. And Moscato Dasti, which is an Italian product, which at the world all things is, you know, premium, is also sweet. And Moscato, as I find like Moscato or Muscat Autonel as a grape, does better with a little bit of sugar in it because it has those beautiful fruit and floral characteristics. I'm actually reminded reminded of a Derek Barnett, who's a my favorite, one of my favorite Ontario winemakers, and uh, you know, a sparkling muscat. Uh, what was it like a couple of years ago? Yeah. And it was some. It was so far removed from all the products he's been making today, which was all like quite dry, f- uh, quote unquote, fine wines. And he said, "I'm making this because I love drinking the stuff, and I really want to make my own. And if no one buys it, I'm gonna drink it." That's how most winemakers philosophically a- approach things. But yeah, I remember that particular wine in general. Um, I'm a-, a shameless drinker of port. Uh, I've been asking people to split cases with me. Uh, I recently found Knee um, Port, their 10-year tawny that I purchased from um, mm. Le Sommelier from the agent directly. Le Sommelier is not a sommelier. That's the name of the agency. And uh, you know, I'm pretty shameless, shameless on that. Uh, Danny, do you have any any sweet wines you want to shout out here? 
Uh, my, it's it's got to be actually. It was a few years ago. Me and uh, my spouse, we went down this uh, Moscato rabbit hole, and we must have bought every single Moscato we can get our hands on at the LCBO just to try them all. And because because they are so sweet, um, you know, we wanted to basically eliminate some from not not purchasing again. But you know, we landed on, and I, I can't remember it. I wish I could, um, but. We landed on one that was our favorite and we would buy it all the time. Like anytime we were going to an event, especially in the summer, that was like our go-to uh, Moscato. Oh, it was delicious. Derek's Moscato was actually the bubbly that was popped at my engagement. Now, to be fair, Derek was also one of the people who was like <laughs> part of the scheme. Andre was actually part of that scheme to uh, kind of have us like uh, my partner, Eric, proposed to me in secret. It was, you know, a surprise and all that. But the ce celebratory bubbly that Derek pulled out was his sparkling muscat. That's one I should get in your hands, Danny. I think you would you and your spouse would love that one very much. Yeah, I would love to try that. All right. Well, coming up next week, we are going to uh, unpack a little bit more about Greek wine, not sweet wine. And I uh, want to thank everybody for listening. This has been Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. Set your alarms for next week. We'll see you then.